1: This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. BellaCatering.com.au is where you can find them. They're one of Sydney's best catering companies. And since the absolute gargantuan shit show of 2020 has descended upon us like one of those spaceships in Independence Day and COVID-19 has changed our lives, these guys have pivoted from being one of the best face-to-face catering companies in all of Sydney to home delivery and creating just amazing stuff that you can order, you can take home, you can chuck in a freezer um and it's why cook if you're gonna have people over i know that it's tough to even like think of having people over you got to worry about hand sanitizers and temperature checks and does this person have a mask and really is that relative of mine that clean do you want to invite them maybe you want to change it don't think about anything else except for that invite list order from bella catering if you're in the greater Sydney area they can help you they're a great family business they're part of our little family here at one eight minute productions thank you for listening now onto the show
2: I had all kinds of cute, humble things to say, and they're all gone. Uh, Somebody ought to mention Gordon Willis, who did an extraordinary job as cinematographer. I really do believe the acting level of the movie all the way through for a large cast was remarkable, and that's the work of Alan Kukula. And finally, this movie has been, from the very beginning, the obsession of Robert Redford. Thank you.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Episode 84 is where we're at, the 84th minute of the 1976 masterpiece, collaborated and sort of mixed together by these incredible forces in Hollywood. One, the great Alan J. Pacula; two, Robert Redford, three, William Goldman, and just the alchemy of some of the best performers and tussling with any really critical historical moment. And miraculously not screwing it up, um, which in hindsight is all the more miraculous. Today, I have a great guest who I've already had like a proto all the President's Minutes conversation with on his podcast, which was very exciting and which uh, sort of laid the groundwork for us to talk today, which I'm really excited about. And um, this show never ceases to amaze me. The interconnectedness of people who are working and teaching and appreciating this text. He is a lecturer in English at Yale. For Australian listeners, that's important. <laughs> it's in one of the most <laughs> prestigious universities in the world um, by far. He is a producer and a writer himself, has written for things like uh, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, has had a couple of uh, collaborations of pilots that have gone ahead. One called, uh, sequestered one called the tap has worked with one of his heroes in his bio on uh, com. They talk about working with one of his heroes, Rob Reiner. And I think of another person who has an unbelievable run and is deeply underappreciated. Like Mr. Pakula is that man, Mr. Rob Reiner. Um, he is a writer himself. Um, and has a podcast as I mentioned at the beginning called, to live and dialogue in LA. And if there's anyone who appreciates a pun-based podcast, it is me. It is my (laughs) distinct pleasure to welcome Aaron Tracy to all the President's Minutes, mate. Thank you so much for being a part of the show.
2: I'm excited to be here. I love this show. very excited to be here. Um, And that intro made me think you should do a show on Reiner. How great would it be? You're right. He's underappreciated. But I would put his nine-year run, you know, from from Spinal Tap all the way through, I guess it would be A Few Good Men, maybe The American President. That's as good a nine-year run as like, any
1: American director of all time. Any like it, it's really tough. Like that's a that is a continual fun argument when you get your film friends around. It's like yeah. who's had the best run, and a lot of people do the like the foot stamp of like there's no better run than Coppola, Two Godfathers, A Conversation, To Apocalypse Now, and you're like yeah, right. look, that's really good. Like let's just ignore that for a quick second, and you try and like you try and find who's had those runs. And I, Rob Reiner's run. I mean, this is Spinal it's Tap. Amazing this is spinal, yeah. just this just first that movie just, Oh my God. can you imagine his first movie out of the gate
2: <laughs> no, no walking <laughs> into his office is humiliating because he's got <laughs> all the posters framed on the wall and it's just like you you feel like you're walking into like the writer's guild because it's just like oh he is he has all the great movies i was oh no actually he made all of them in one decade yeah
1: terrible. yeah so the, i mean they're special and then they're special but yeah no like bakula in this show um, yeah. It just sort of starts to occur to you that like there are some of these filmmakers who, for whatever reason, just seem to escape the acclaim because they maybe have a run and then they sort of dip out. But holy moly, that nine year run, as you said, that's that's a he's he's a high in your draft picks if you if you for if you're a sporting person of like who's ever had the best run in cinema like because yeah that many stone cold classics in a row of a variety of genres. You're just like, that is a very eclectic right. personality too to be able to flex those different muscles. Cause Spinal Tap is such, I mean, so organic. So like just being in the moment, the entire script is like, you know, different. And as you said, all the way to the American president, the American president, like the, what was it? I think uh, Sorkin talks about the 300 page script that he had for the American president. He right. ended up reusing you know, all of the discarded bits for what would later form the pilots to the West Wing. So it's like, it's all And there's a
2: real, yeah, there's a big connection to our show, our movie today, actually. Um, The original uh, script for uh, All the President's Men was going to star Robert Redford. Uh, Redford was going to play the president. He was going to be this sort of romantic hero um, as the sort of, I guess I should say, what Rob told me is that, originally it was going to be much more sort of political heavy uh not super different from all the president's men yes and then um as they sort of uh you know winnowed down the script from sorkin's 300 page opus (laughs) to what it became it became much more sort of romantic comedy and redford bowed out and he you know it went on to it went to michael douglas of course but um you know, my understanding is that Redford had a a huge role that he played in the sort of the genesis of the script, the initial ideas. I think he might have,
1: might've been his idea to begin with. And he brought it to Rob. Uh, Unbelievable because in the, in the like blooming research of the show, I feel like it's just never ending rabbit holes. You can go down. It's like, I just love watching. I, I did a watch of President's backed up by the candidate, which I'd never seen only about a month ago. And just watching Redford explore the nooks and crannies of like this intersections of politics genre. And so you see him on the, you know, you know, I guess behind enemy lines, if you're talking about it from an all the president's men point of view as a politician who kind of goes in, has to buy into his own BS and then you get these great, like absolutely great scenes of him, like, just spouting all of this rhetoric and he doesn't believe it. And then when he actually gets elected, spoilers for a movie that's now essentially 50 years old, but when he actually gets elected at the end of the movie and Peter Boyles his like political advisor, he's like, holy shit, what do I do now? And it felt... Also very similar perhaps to the current leader of the United States, which is like, holy shit, I'm here. Yeah. Now what do I do? Now what do I do? Right. And um but yeah, no, terrific and very interesting because again, another titan of this era, Martin Sheen, then goes on and does uh the West Wing right. and, 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 and take and takes that role. And it's like, well, there's there's one of the there's one of this era's guys who's like, oh, this is a right. meaty, chewy part, I can have a lot of fun with it.
2: Yeah, I love all those 70s Redford movies, um, which you're right, which are really about something as opposed to most movies today. Um, He had so much to say in that little trilogy he did with Downhill Racer also in The Candidate, where he was trying to sort of deconstruct, you know, what it means to be a public figure in America, what it means to be a politician in America. Um, I gotta say, though, just thinking about him in the context of All the President's Men, obviously I'm still a giant fan, but it leaves a bad taste in my mouth knowing, you know, that he claims that he basically wrote the screenplay. Yes, that that hubbub. I assume you've talked about on other episodes of the podcast.
1: Let's I I think it's something we can retussle with. I've had a few Goldman fans on who've, you know, who defended it, but we're in the 84th episode. And I don't think we've talked about it in depth for a little while. So I feel like if this is your first episode, welcome. (laughs) But it is something that I I personally wrestle with because I'm like, it's just not true.
2: It's not true. Um, and there's a great article in the um, Writers Guild magazine where um, Richard Staten goes back through all the drafts of William Goldman's scripts uh, that are in the library at the WGA and basically proves that William Goldman. Wrote this script. Um, the the sort of the controversy came about when I think it was Vanity Fair published an article where uh, Redford basically said, you know what, we threw out William Goldman's script, and me and and the director basically hold up in a hotel room with with Hoffman coming in every once in a while, and we just completely tore apart the script and rewrote it. Yes. Um, and that's yeah, that's not true. I mean, my guess is a lot of actors and and redford is obviously so much more than an actor he's a producer he's a creator um but so many actors feel like if they if they add a line or change a line then they are co-authors of the screenplay and they don't realize that it's you know it's goldman's architecture it's goldman's building of the creation of the character building of the character that's what the screenplay is so once you have all that in place Yes, an actor can make up as many as they want. It's still not theirs. It's no. still, they're only able to perform that because of the screenplay that's there. And again, you know, Redford is, he's, he's a legend. He's one of the greatest actors, producers of all time. So I don't know if that is what happens, but something something got him very upset about, um, you know, Goldman having credit on this film and him not having credit.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's really interesting. And it's it's one of those things that you can... It's got it reeks of the bitterness of a friendship that fell apart, which is actually true, you know. And and it feels like if that'd come off better, it have been like, well, you know, we, you obviously, and I think every director and you yourself as a creator know, it's and for folks who are listening who don't know, like the script is a great scaffolding, like it gives you the design. It is literally the structure that you go by, and then in when you are inspired by any given moment, it things happen and you know that's right. the, why we credit the out there's some movies that are so honed in on a particular voice and like tarantino is a guy that's like this it's such honed in on his voice and everything about it and he composes every shot that you know it you know vulgar or tourists like myself are like you get off on that because it's like there's a guy is so singular in his vision that everyone else is just compliment he's just there to support it the inverse of that is something like call the president's men where you can clearly see, it's Redford being a driving forces producer. He's an incredible sure. presence as an actor. It's Pakula's inspiration and working with really fastidious, um, uh, sort of workman like behind the scenes people. Whether it's the, the 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 people who designed the film or whether it's Willis, you know there's a whole crew of people there that are just finding inspiration in spaces filming in, you know, Judy, Judy Hoback Miller's house, as in the scene that precedes this and all those sorts of things. But Goldman's script is so important. And we were just talking yeah. in the run up to even recording about Sam Wasserman's incredible book, the big goodbye about the making of Chinatown. Yeah. And you can't make, you can't make Roman Polanski's Chinatown, even though, you know, the draft that he submitted to Polanski in the beginning, you can't make that really tight and hone down 120 page script without what started out as like a 600 page treatment and then went down to 330 page script that you can then trim away and hone to the singular vision of that director. Like you can't, you can't make up what he did. He built an entire world and then they chose a, a perspective on that world. And I feel like that's Robert Town did. Yeah. That Robert Town did for Chinatown. And I think yeah. that, William Goldman creates the voice, and then I think how the chemistry of the movie works, and and with these, especially right. Hoffman and Redford playing off each other, it might be that's a Bernstein line. No, we'll flip it. That's a that's a Woodward line. You just give the delivery differently. This will be a Bernstein line. They were, you know, learning each other's lines to be able to organically jump in, and it's like, yes, they made the it sing, but. William yeah, it's a, it's a
2: Goldman joint. Yes, for sure. I'm <laughs> the biggest William Goldman fan. Yeah, um, you know, it's also just the the idea for the structure is William Goldman's, and I would argue that the structure of this movie is, you know, I put it up with with any screenplay of all time. Um, Nine out of 10 writers who attack this material would do it in a completely different way, you know? Mm. For one thing, they would take the ending way past where it is. The fact that we don't get to see, the fact that we never meet our antagonist, that is a truly crazy choice. Imagine going into a studio and saying, you're going to make, you know, any kind of movie, an action movie, whatever, suspense, and you're never going to meet your antagonist. Um, that is a, that's a revolutionary kind of idea. And that's exactly what Goldman does here. And then the idea is we never see our antagonists brought down. We never see the fruit of the labor of our heroes. Um, but you don't need it. And Goldman does such a good job just sort of bringing us on this you know, really exciting journey, this character study of these two guys who are revolutionaries themselves and who are changing the world. Um, almost any other writer would have done it a different way. Um, and I will just say about, about Goldman and Redford's relationship, it's all the more disheartening because Goldman very much gave Redford his, his break. You know, he wrote Butch Cassidy and, and the Sundance, Sundance Kid, Kid, which, yeah, which, which made Redford a superstar. Right. And so then they collaborated again, collaborated again together, whatever it's four or five, six years later. Um, and so it's just, it's just more disheartening to, to, uh, to know the fallout.
1: And, but, and um, Goldman wrote yeah. very fondly of him. A lot of times about yeah, and 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 when you read, you know, his big pictures and what lie did I tell and his incredibly influential yeah. books, he he's talking directly or like the, the compendiums of all of his columns that he wrote. He he talks with like when he's talking about what a movie star is, his 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 role model in his head is his shorthand is always that this guy's not Robert Redford or they are right or they, or they are operating on the same frequency, but they're doing it slightly differently. And so like when he's talking about people like Tom Cruise and Will Smith and those things, like right. you can't escape a paragraph almost without him going like, well, compared to Redford, because that's right. his proto like movie star producer. And, you know, there's inescapable, you know, right. comparisons that he gets. So it's, it's just this weird thing. You know, it's, 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 it's one of those sort of, it's yeah. a tragedy for us fans. Cause it's like, it would be so much nicer if everyone just could agree that, the alchemy, there's no single voice <laughs> that it belongs in this movie. In this movie, it does not belong. Like I'm a, I'm right. an auteurist to the bone as a cinephile, you know, the people like Saris and Kale who, you know, basically wrote auteurist poetry into our brains, you know, like that is like in my DNA. But right. this is a movie that is such an incredible alchemy that it is undeniable. Like it's for me, if anyone's like, what's the example of a, f- a true collaboration in every essence, it is this movie. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I totally agree. And it's one of those things also that makes you think about the bigger picture. Um, Goldman obviously was, has perhaps the the greatest stature of any sc- American screenwriter, any screenwriter of all time. If he did not, if he was a first time or second time or third time screenwriter, first of all, maybe he wouldn't have come up with, with this brilliance, but also Redford would have won that battle, you know, going away, running away with it. Um, So it's like you think about how many times this has happened where an actor or producer, you know, throws a writer off a project or just denigrates him to the point where people no longer believe that the screenwriter is actually responsible for the product. And we never hear about that screenwriter again. Um, Goldman, luckily, is such a big deal. And, you know, speaking of Rob Reiner, I think Goldman is the only writer to write multiple rob reiner movies right he wrote the princess bride and he wrote misery and he's the mentor to aaron sorkin who wrote all the president's men and um a few good men so sorkin's another writer who wrote two for rob actually american Um,
1: american president and a few good men american president and a few good men sorry yeah yeah exactly yeah um also yeah go ahead before we dive into the minute that you know just about that collaboration is like i just all i always want to give him a shout out when we can talk about it Academy award-winning George Jenkins who did the production design of this movie. Robert L. Wolf, who, you know, since talking to John Borson, who was Alan J. Picoult's assistant on all the president's men in episode 76. If you haven't listened to it yet, it's one of my favorites of the series. You must listen to it. One of the things he talked about is exactly what you talked about uh, just now, Aaron, which is like, they had original, one of the things that when they were in the editing room in sort of the you know, the poetry of having Nixon arriving on the helicopter, you know, one of the original cuts that they did of the movie, they tried a moment with the archival footage of Nixon leaving on a chopper at the end. And so that you would have this moment of Nixon arriving on the chopper as at the beginning of the film and him leaving at the end. And Mm. it was Robert L. Wolf, who was a Republican and a, and a protege in the Sam Peckinpah school of editing. Like he edited on the teams that did the wild bunch and you know, those sorts of films. and it was Robert O. Wolf going nuts two on the nose finished with the teletype. You don't need to, like, oh, it's man. like, like that is. So when you think of the great architecture of this movie and the great design yeah. of Jenkins and the great acting and all those bits, it's a moment that's sitting there with Pakula and his editor in the end, in the suite and going, it's too much. Take right. it out. I love that. That's and a great, wow, like, that's a great tidbit. That, that's just such a great, for me, that's like, you know, and Robert O. Wolf then is not going to say, I made this movie what it is today. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's just like right. they had the right people all together, all these different chorus of voices, and they just harmonized perfectly. And right now we've got one of the funnest scenes which couldn't smack more of William Goldman's brilliance. Um, yeah. um, and yeah. he's singing the music of a William Goldman movie. This is his, you know, it's the buddy cop formula that's been ripped off since Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And it's the same with these two guys. If you are watching it now, it is one hour and 23 minutes on the dial. It's the 84th minute. It goes up to one hour, 24 minutes on the dial. Aaron and I are going to watch together right now. You guys are going to listen along. And then we're going to unpack this beautiful, snappy repartee and the manic, chaotic, beautiful energy of Hoffman um, and and Robert Redford's Woodward trying to just catch a thousand ideas a minute on this typewriter, and it's just brilliant. So enjoy it, and we'll be back in a minute to talk about it.
0: So what do we got? Where is that? Where is P that matchbook? M- here, P and M. Okay, L P and, M. and M. could be Larue. It could be Liddy. L is, is Liddy. How do we know that? Because she said it. Right here. She said, at the time of the break-in, there was so much money floating around that I know that Gordon got part of it. So I said, you mean Gordon? Liddy? She said, yes. Yeah. So L yeah, is Liddy. Right. Okay, P P that means P and M. P could be. Uh, Parkinson, it could be uh Porter, it could be Wait a minute. There was a guy once, there was a guy that we talked to last week. Didn't he say that there was a Bart Porter who at one time was a member of the committee to re-elect? Porter was called before the grand jury investigation. So P is definitely Porter. P could be Porter. P is Porter, L is Liddy, that leaves all that that leaves is M. M could be McCord, that's out. It could be Mardian. It could be Magruder. I think it's Magruder. I think it's Magruder, too. Why do you think? It's because he was second in command under Mitchell. Why do you think it's Magruder? I think it's Magruder because at one time he was a temporary head of the committee to re-elect for four.
1: Tragedy of this show is cutting off great scenes sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but yeah. it's a beautiful tragedy. God, I love that minute, and I love the inter- I, I love things. Wait a minute. I love that. I love him going Hoffman smiling at Redford, going, "What do you think it's Magruder?" Like, and that, it's just, this is just, I've said it a few times in some of these episodes, it is just music. It is, these guys are just, I love scenes like this. Um The great Kay, Clay Keller, who's part of the Vidiot's organization, um, who joined me in the last episode said, this is the His Girl Friday moment of this movie. Um That's how much it bounces off each other. I just love this scene. I want to dive into why you love this scene.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. I, I watched this uh, a couple times last night, uh, getting ready for this, and I was surprised at how many sort of notes I made mm-hmm. on the scene. It's, you know, I mean, this is, uh, like I've told you, I, I love your podcast <laughs> because I just love the the complete monomania of, of dealing with, with one minute at a time and giving it such importance, putting every minute of this movie on a pedestal. Yes. Um, uh, but I, I, honestly, I would say you could – you know do it with almost any movie i mean i think a lot of movies obviously uh we'd have to talk about what's wrong with the minute and a movie (laughs) like this we're almost always gonna just worship at its altar but um i just do love uh you know just focusing in on such a short period you know i talked before about the architecture of the movie and i think i kept using that word because you know that's william goldman's word he says that screenwriting is closer to being an architect than an artist Um, and so this minute is a really good moment of, you know, just sort of building the architecture of the movie in, you know, specifically it very much reveals their partnership. Um, each one brings such different skills to the table. So that moment of Hoffman saying, P is Porter, and then Redford says, you know, basically, hold on a second, P could be Porter. <laughs> you know, each partnership, every partnership needs this, right? One one guy's got to be inspirational and energetic and he's making huge leaps forward, and the other one's got to be sort of a, a calm, steady presence who doesn't let himself get carried away by emotions. Um, and that's just done so perfectly with P is Porter. P could be Porter. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's <laughs> so good.
1: And the ebb and flow of the minute is so wonderful because you can tell the excitement and the charge of the dialogue makes them change personas almost in a strange way. It's like because then the the very clinical Woodward towards the end of the scene is like M could be no, it's McCor no, no McCord, that's out. And it could be no, I don't think that. And then he goes, it's Magruder. And then he's excited. And then in, in his own way, Hoffman has to do that reverse interrogation, but the energy is still all the same. Yeah. It's, it's, right. it's terrific for that. And I know this is a weird tangent to go on, but we've been talking about filmmakers who are, I don't know, it's like sage advice. And we talked about Goldman and the way that he just describes things. Um, there is a terrific film, which is coming out in only two days. And I've had a look, uh, I've had a look recently of it's brand new first time ever Blu-ray transfer called night falls on Manhattan. It's a Sidney Lumet movie mm-hmm. from 1996 with Andy Garcia, yeah. a terrific movie. The movie is worth more than the price of any admission to think anything you could potentially see in a cinema for a director's commentary by one Sidney Lumet, the great director of dog day afternoon, 12 angry Men, network. I mean, just those three, forget it, career over, you are in the pantheon. You're in the hall of fame. Like, and listening to Sidney Lumet, he said something and described editing And this scene is so charged with editing in ways that other parts of this movie aren't. And Sidney Lumet said that editing is, you don't want to waste your editorial momentum. Making fast edits is a choice to build tension, to to fire people up and fire the audience up. And in this scene, I love the bang, bang, bang. The the, editors in the early stages of this sequence, the pans are slow between the characters. It starts to speed up with Hoffman's speed. And as they are putting this together, Robert L. Wolf, as the editor and cooler and designing the scene, is firing. Bang, 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 between either guy. And Willis is like anchored the camera in the same spot or two cameras that are following back and forth to make this work. And I just when Lumet says in that commentary of his own film, don't burn your audience out with the tension. Don't waste these editorial speeds for nothing. You're, you're using it to really heighten an experience for the audience. I just watched this scene again after listening to that commentary recently and just hearing that wisdom and going, man, they so effectively use the tension. They do not waste it. They give you all of the satisfaction of the speed of it. And it's such a it's subtle com- Compared to other movies and then you look at the inverse which is like an action movie you know the you know people who are influenced by like a paul greengrass and they just waste you know they'll do 13 edits of liam neeson jumping over a fence and you're like this means nothing <laughs> it <laughs> yeah. means nothing it's not doing anything for me except showing me that liam neeson can no longer mount a fence Without any assistance. Right, right,
2: Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the trick they teach you in, in screenwriting school, right? About how to write an action scene, that it can't just be a cool stunt. It's gotta be something that stems from whatever the character's insecurity is. Yes. And this scene, I would argue that this scene from All the President's Men is all the president's men version of an action scene. You yes. know, I mean the typewriter yes. is gunfire, right? It might as well be gunfire. Um And uh, all the jargon that they use, you know, L is Liddy, P is Porter. We don't know who those names are, right? A casual viewer of this movie has no (laughs) idea who Porter, maybe they know who Liddy is, but they certainly don't know who Porter is. But it's okay because, you know, you think about any any war movie, and there's so much military jargon, right? Mm. But we don't care right because we we get the gist we get what we need to get from that dialogue and we understand that something giant is happening something scary is happening and that's that's exactly what this scene is which is which is one of the reasons i was so excited to talk
1: about it yeah it's uh, i just love it and so that 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 new lens that i'm taking on the editing it, it breathes new life the performances are terrific and i feel like the beginning of the minute has some great holds of like especially thinking and pondering and and, um, the it's, that's, it's such a fine line because I agree with you. There are so many times that people go like, first time I watch this, I need to go to the Wikipedia page and actually see some of these names. So I don't remember them, but it's right. like, I want to know what happened. And I agree because, you know, now that I've watched this so many times and consumed so much, of research around it. It's like, it's second nature to me, but like, I imagine this scene, like you said, yeah, it's, you get the gist, all the war jargon, police cop jargon. It's a two eleven. It's a, you know, whatever you don't, you didn't, that means nothing to you, but you just kind of catch what you need to catch. Um, but just the choices Goldman seems to know when he can get away with a heap of jargon that people don't understand. And then knows Mm -hmm. right in this moment where they're like, when they say Magruder, why do you think it's Magruder, which, Unfortunately, we just get cut off at the end of the scene, but it's like explaining who he is and why he's important and why he's another key figure. And it's just like, takes that just extra second to explain who he is as opposed to the Lydian porters. Cause we maybe heard their name so far, but I just love that choice. It's apart from the fact of the way the scene flows, but man, it's good. Yes.
2: Yeah. A, a helpful exercise I always find is um, thinking about how else the scene could have been written, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a very expository scene in many ways, right? They're just trying to figure out he, Dustin Hoffman, you know, in the last scene was with Jane Alexander and he was learning a little bit about, um, you know, some of the, the figures that she interacted with and so this scene could simply be the two of them, Hoffman and Redford <clears throat> you know, in the newsroom, it could be them sitting on a couch, it could be could be set anywhere and they're just sort of you know, thinking, all right, well, you know, she gave me this piece of information um, that lines up with this other piece of information. You know, the fact that they turn this into, like I said, an action scene with, you know, the typewriter working fast and furious. I mean, there's no reason for that, right? We it doesn't have to get the article done in the next five minutes. And Hoffman jumping up and down, you know, from the couch, walking into the kitchen, grabbing food. You remember Hoffman in the previous scene had like five cups of coffee because he wanted to stay in the living room. So he kept asking for more and more coffee so he'd be allowed to stay. So he's just super high on caffeine, right? And so Goldman takes advantage of that by having him, you know, absolutely restless. Um, and so, you know, the way you hide exposition like this in a movie, uh, if you're as talented as Goldman is, is you create really sort of exciting uh, visuals to go around it. And in this case, it's it's all of those things. It's the typewriter clicking, clacking. It's Hoffman, you know, being high on caffeine and so running around. It's 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 all of that. It's it's a it's like a masterclass.
1: And we miss something that it's funny what moments emerge because we you know we put every minute on of this film as you said and i, I love what you said is like we put it on a pedestal but someone was like yeah. i really am disappointed i don't get to talk about the cookie because the cookie is just such a funny it is such can a we talk th- about the cookie please can- we can it's <laughs> I, such, I really like to talk about the cookie <laughs> it's so funny it's just such a funny thing we can cheat into the next minute it's so okay. it's such a funny touch please talk about the cookie yeah
2: Okay. And, and I, you know, I want to respect the parameters of the show, but uh, you know, when I was watching this on HBO max, it looked like it was literally at the, at the zero, zero mark at the end of, of one 23. So I'm going to, I'm going to take it. Um, I would argue, I, <laughs> I don't want a cookie might be my favorite line in the whole movie. Uh, it's, 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 <laughs> it's fantastic.
1: It's so good because um, it's, it's one of those moments where it's like, if you if they made that up, and it wasn't scripted and it was just something that they found That's on the fine. day, it's perfect. But like exactly. you said, everything you said is about with an action scene is about the insecurities and it's about their relationship. And it, here it's these guys going. It's Redford's insecurity is Woodward is I don't want to jump to conclusions, and and Bernstein's insecurity is that this story is going to get taken away. And so the action of right. the scene is like tempering those two things. And so finally. What, like it that little here's a co- have a cookie here's a reward yeah. and he's like I don't do this right. I don't do this I don't I don't have a cookie yeah it's yeah it's so it's but it's so funny and I saw this earlier this year it was one of the last like cinema you know in Australia cinemas have opened up so I've seen a few things since we've opened up which we're lucky now in the year of COVID-19 but one of my earlier screenings in the year was seeing this movie and that line gets a belly laugh in an audience full of people they like it gets a oh, it's great, great to hear. laugh it gets a great laugh yeah
2: yeah. And it, you're right. It does come off like a throwaway line by Redford. Um, and so it very well may have been improv. And again, I, I respect the hell out of Redford if he improv it. He deserves full credit for it. He does not deserve credit for writing the screenplay because he improv that and <laughs> Goldman put them in that position. But yeah, I, I think you're exactly right about it being uh, sort of a symbol of a reward. You know, I remember my sister always used to sort of sarcastically say, if I did something well, she would say, you want a cookie? Like, it's a, it's a reward <laughs> that we all use for doing something well. And in this case, it works so well because Bernstein is sure that they just figured out who P is, but Woodward is not so sure. So it's like, no, I don't want a cookie right I don't now, want a cookie, right? We yeah. haven't cracked the case. It's a perfect summation of what's happening in the scene. Um, and it's also just, it, it makes the characters feel lived in. You know, mm. we we get the sense that uh, Bernstein is the kind of guy that snacks and moves around and oh. needs something to do with his hands and is, like, craving sugar and caffeine at all times. You know, that's just – it's the definition of who he is. And like I was saying before, you know, Woodward is the opposite. He's much lower key. Um, him saying I don't want a cookie is basically like him saying I don't want – Cocaine right now, you fiend Like <laughs> stop it. You know, it's like it's it's just the perfect it, it makes them feel lived in. We understand who they are from that moment and it's it says so much about their partnership.
1: And there's nothing like if you ever work with anyone and you know, whether it's co co-writing a, a you know, co-writing a features together, co-writing on a website right. together, collaborating on a podcast, it's like one of you is the relentless snacker and the other one is not. Right. And so Then there comes to a moment where they're like snack and you're like, no, like it's such a deeply relatable thing. Like my, um, you know, I'm, I'm like a sweet tooth kind of person um, sometimes. So like, I feel like if my energy gets up, I'm like, I could be the guy that's like just constantly snacking, doing 20 things. And then, you know, right. I think we all find our Woodward's and burn scenes in ourselves, depending on how manic we are based on the excitement of whatever project we're working on. But man, I don't want a cookie yeah. is just, it's such a, it's so <laughs> good. It's so, it's so good. good.
2: And no, it's a great point about, you know, writing partnerships. Um, and oftentimes you take on the, the sort of the role that you need to play. Like I used to write with my buddy Alex um, and he would, whenever he got pessimistic or cynical about one of our projects, I would take on the optimistic upbeat role. And yes. oftentimes we would switch places. Um, and yes. in terms of snacking, I remember he would also, he would always come over and he would have like a popsicle. And so, you know, I love those popsicles. I would have them when he wasn't around, but like when we were working, I was the sort of more down to earth one of, of, you know, I don't need a popsicle right now. And he was just, he would consume them. Um, you know, yeah we, we, we constantly shift those roles, change those roles, depending on what's needed in a partnership. And you really do see that with
1: Woodward and Bernstein here in just such a fun, cozy way. And, and you know, it, this is a little bit behind, behind the music of my show in this podcast. It's like, I feel like whenever I'm down, my wife knows that I'm down. And then like, I'll miraculously sort of be sitting on the couch pondering, maybe we're watching a movie or something like that. And then like, the snacks will come out like a delightful, whatever it is, a nice right. biscuits and delicious biscuits and cheese or ice cream with, you know, something she's pulled together. It's like, Oh, the snacks are out. Cause she knows it's like, come on, let's get back. You know, let's get that energy up. Right. You're the snacker. And it's just those funny things that it, you t- And like you said, that's the truest like relationship. It's like, I, I, I think I, I feel like I'm, I'm probably way more the guy who goes and grabs the cookie and off and throws it to a friend and like, I don't want a cookie. Um, I feel like I'm I, more that guy and it's just, it's just, I don't know. That's like that There's yeah, yeah. flashes of humanity that are just so powerful, like in amongst all of this really perfectly and precise stuff is just little, that's a little flash of like memorable.
2: Totally. And I'm sure everyone can relate to this right now. I know I certainly can, uh, you know, in COVID that you and your partner take on very different roles. They're, they're. Tons of times where I've been just deeply pessimistic and sad about the future, both about our industry, when movies are going to be made again, but just also about, you know, how many people are dying sadly in this country and how many people are out of work and struggling for money. And when I'm like that, my girlfriend will be much more optimistic and try to make me feel better because if we were both that way, it just Uh, we wouldn't be able to survive. uh, So you
1: always need that yin and yang. And, and I feel like that's a reflex. That's a good reflex. If you've got great relationships and you've got really close friends, it's like sometimes you'll just see what they're missing. You know, I, um, uh, you know, one of my best mates They've been so busy. Um, uh, we had to reschedule this recording because he just had his brand new baby girl was born and he's been so like manically getting things prepared at their house. And he came to my place like about a month ago and he came down here and I plied him with booze and great food. And we watched once upon a time in Hollywood. And that's exactly what he needed in his life. You know, like I think that's I feel like it's, like it's just like you needed that in your life right now. Things have been stressful. People have been working really hard to like, you know, just doing yeah, what they can really in this sweet. environment. And it's just like, here's some booze, yeah. here's some nice food, and here's 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 Brad Pitt wearing moccasins for two hours. Um, this is what you need <laughs> in your life right
2: now. Completely. Um, you know, and, and getting back to the scene, you know, something you said uh, made me think of this. Uh, I talk a lot in my class about how so many great movies and TV shows are actually metaphors for the writing life. You know, these are, we, we, this may be about journalism, um, but it's, it's by a guy who just sits in his very expensive Carlisle, you know, hotel room uh, apartment. Uh, but all of us are just, you know, sitting around our apartments and or our houses and just writing all day and so naturally we're expressing our existence right we're expressing what we're doing through the characters through the world that we're writing about um so you know in class we talk about examples like mad men you know which is all about creating ads um breaking bad is all about you know creating meth but they are both in their own way
1: (laughs) about creating tv not, um, and 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 some would argue that Breaking Bad, the meth creation, is actually more structured because if you have uh-huh. watched on Draper, it's like play yeah. yourself with booze, try and find inspiration, and it happens like the muses. You know, it's so in, it's it's so right. uh, it's so o- almost like you can't even grasp it. Like it's like a gas where you, the smoke is slipping through your fingers. Wherein, you know, there's something scientific about nice. Walter, Walter White's, you know, like I will structure this. <laughs> I'm going to make this yeah. it's precise. I'm going to do it. Yeah.
2: And I'm sure that that represents the different writing styles of Gilligan and Weiner also. Yeah. Um, and of course the, the mentor apprentice relationship, which is just so common. Um, and in TV, um, you see very much with, with Peggy and Don, Mad Madman and Walt and Jesse in Breaking Bad. Um, but here, you know, this is also, this scene especially is a perfect metaphor for the writing life. You know, Bernstein walks in and he is uh, going through his notes, right? From the previous scene, from all the research he did. And he's trying to come, you know, what's he doing with those notes? He's trying to come up with a coherent narrative, right? I mean, that is exactly, you can just imagine Goldman going through his notes on all the president's men that he, you know, he took on the book, all the president's men that he took in his research, you know, from talking to people at the Washington Post, and he's trying to create a coherent narrative. Um, and then you know you pull back in the scene, and what's on the wall? It's a giant corkboard filled with note cards, and that's exactly what a writer's room looks like. Yeah, just tons of notes on these cards or, or whiteboards now, um, just filled with ideas, filled with structure ideas, filled with scene ideas. This this scene is is you know they're talking about how to figure out you know who the different players in the Knicks administration um, are, how to link them to Watergate, but it, it, just, it just as easily could be about how to write a screenplay.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, it, and also just like, um, especially Goldman, because he's got that background as, an, as a as a as a fiction writer from the very beginning you know, taking a note on a matchbook and taking a note on a napkin and maybe him even just hearing the stories of how Carl would like assemble that and be his sort of organized disorganization, if you like, the way that he sort of, right, he right. Sort of, um, I, I think that that's really relatable for anyone who's written fiction because like there's sometimes, you know, you go for a run or you go for a walk and, you know, if, if you don't sprint home and like pour out that, blistering clarity that you had about like how I'm going to structure this next project right, right, or how I'm yeah. going to do it. Um, it's, it, it, it just runs away. I don't, I don't know how to describe it other than that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> right. So I, I, you know, I, I, always think about this kind of thing, you know, um, we, we see a few times in this movie, uh, Woodward and Bird you know, just pulling notes out of their pockets. Um, notes are such a big deal. You know, the notes you took on a phone call, the notes you took while you were out And to me, you know, I feel I I try to be so meticulous and orderly. Those notes would drive me absolutely bananas because they, I mean, they look like an insane person's, you know, sketching. Um, What I do when I come up with an idea and I often come up with my best ideas when I'm biking through Manhattan or just out somewhere moving because moving really helps, you know, stir, I don't know what it is, stir the hippocampus, whatever it is. I I come up with ideas moving.
1: I I can't explain it either, but there's a few things that, a few ideas of like long form, you know, critical pieces and things like that, that came together with such blistering clarity. And like, I, I wish I'd used the voice memo, God damn it. But I didn't have my phone on me. I just <laughs> had my watch. I was running with my Apple watch. And so I you know, had my headphones in my yeah. ear and I was like, man, if I could record a voice memo right now, I would.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I do. So I just take out my phone and I pull up voice memos and I record something and it could be as simple as this is, this is a fix for the problem I'm having in act three, or this is a great line of dialogue I just thought of. And then I transcribe them later when I get home. And then it's also just a really fun, um, Kind of uh, archive, you know. I can go back into my voice memos and I can listen to something when I was walking on, you know, Thirteenth Street and Sixth Avenue in Manhattan, and I came up with the the closer for the teaser of a Law and Order episode, you know. And that's just kind of fun. And it's like, oh, okay, I, you know, my my dumb self just walking around, coming up with that idea, and then yeah, later it's produced on TV. Like that's just a, a fun little time capsule.
1: And, um, and there's there's so much of this that, um, you know, I think some people say, you know, they're like, oh, you you can't make things like this, I'm like, I I, would totally be in for the journalism movie, journalism movie or journalism TV show, um, procedural journalism TV show, like these guys, like in, in the trenches in 2020. Like I would be yeah. personally up for it. I think like the voice memo life, the, you know, having to transcribe things, you know, far away, having to nail an interview, having to get a photo, having to, you know, acquire different sources and having, contrary media outlets that seem to like they're operating as their own propagandistic arms that are fighting against you. I feel like like that's, that's the show. It's like, what does that look like now? Like, what's it like fighting in the trenches when you're writing for the times, the New York times that is, um, or the Post or something like that. And then, and then for the next week, you know, Fox news is, you know, plastering some personal story about you to discredit the story. You know what I mean? Like it's, it feels like to me, like that could be a ripe, that's a ripe ground that feels unexplored. Yeah. You know,
2: that's one of those ideas that gets pitched, you know, every year. And I've never been able to understand my friends and I all talk about why there's not been that one perfect journalism show in the same Mm -hmm. way that there are 15 hospital doctor lawyer shows. Um, My oldest and closest friend is, is, is uh, this guy, Sam, who works for the New York times. And he has so many great stories about, you know, compiling stories, um, you know, interviewing, uh, I wanted to say witnesses, but just interviewing people for their stories, sources, I should say, um, the sort of conventional wisdom in Hollywood is that the stakes are not high enough. And, you know, with lawyer cop doctor shows, you have people's lives on the line. I would argue you could find a way to make people's lives on the line with journalism also, especially in the age of fake news and the age of Trump. Um, but I think that's always been the fear among executives that viewers would not be able to understand the stakes if you don't have something as big as Watergate every week. You know, it's been tried a couple times, you know, Newsroom, obviously it was about TV news, which is a, a different kind of journalism. And I don't really think that show particularly worked. Um, Shonda Rhimes uh, has a new show for Netflix that, that may work. Um, but someone will crack it in the same way that there was the conventional wisdom was you cannot have a show about politics before the West wing. And then the West wing blew that up. And then two years ago, there were no less than six shows that took place in the white house. <laughs> um, someone will, will crack the ceiling on journalism and then they'll just be, you know, a dozen journalists. I, I
1: mean, if you're talking about danger being the, being the metric of uh, or the, the the unanswered question in previous years pitches. It's like, you only have to go to 2020 to find journalists as being assaulted and arrested on the streets. And it's like, yes, guess what? We just found a way to, to make it dangerous to be a journalist again. And when you're reporting on like malfeasance and, you know, I, I feel like people have short memories, you know, cause you and I are fans of are fans of older things. It's like journalists were always getting bundled up by corrupt policemen in, in every, of every one of the great, like detective Detective movies, yeah. like journalists, are they're, they're not welcome um, to, right. to to cast their light on it. So it feels just like it's just like someone just hasn't hasn't pieced together how an arc is going to go. Look, yeah, completely, Aaron. It's an absolute treat talking to you. We've talked for many hours yeah. now on podcasts. It's so good, and I'm so glad that I got you on the show. And I and and when I say that, um, I I don't know if I say it enough, but I'll say it now. It's like the fact that the show resonates for people really means something to me. And the fact that it means something to you and it resonates with you is all the more, um, uh, all, it makes me all the more chuffed. So I'm just really appreciative of uh, your support and, and thank you for reaching out again and, um, inviting yeah. me on your great show and, and, and being a part of this show.
2: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I said this a little bit, um, on my, uh, podcast, uh, with you, but I, I just think this is one of the coolest ideas for podcasts I've ever heard. And part of it is <laughs> because um, you're clearly doing it for just the love of the movie. Like it it you know, listening to your shows, it very much sounds like you would be talking about every minute of these movies, even if you didn't have a podcast. <laughs> you know, you would be just at a bar or at a coffee shop, you know, boring your friends or, you know, dragging your friends into it. Um and the fact that you've assembled uh this really cool infrastructure to do it in an exciting, compelling way, I just think it's 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 what podcasts should be. The the oh. passion comes through. I think it's so cool.
1: Oh, thank you so much, and and literally, that is that is the uh, what do you call it? Like the inciting incident of my life is that my <laughs> friends, my friends got so sick of me talking about heat. They're like, just do a podcast like about it or something. Shut that's up, awesome. like. And so that's how it started, and then obviously bloomed into this show. And and truly, you know, I feel like, you know, you you I think you were kind to say, absolutely every movie could have a minute podcast. In my mind, there are certain ones that do not stand up to the scrutiny because they just don't have the perfection. I continue to marvel at like movies like presidents because there is just not a wasted second in every minute of this masterpiece. And, then and, and I'm packing it every time with new great guests like yourself. I just like, I go, I just, I, I'm like, I'm waiting for the minute that I'm bored and it just literally never <laughs> happens. It just never happens. We're like nearly 90 minutes into the movie and I've right. just been compelled and moved by like every single Part of this movie every 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 selection it's just it's it's top shelf
2: i gotta say though the 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 end goal just like the the platonic you know ideal version of this show is someday you do you know every single minute of like i don't know summer rental or weekend of bernie's <laughs> or you know some just crappy 80s week, movie weekend
1: of bernie's might get me because i'm i'm <laughs> such a fan of how bad that movie is um uh, i i would i would be all in for that but you know well look Um, Call me. I'll be ready. I'll do my minute. (laughs) I'm ready. You'll do it. And every other person I call will be like, nah, I'm good. So it'll be like, (laughs) it'll be like 90 episodes. You'll be the only guest that comes up (laughs) once for one minute and maybe twice. Um, But yeah, no, look, uh, Thank you Uh, that so many other projects that people know about on this show um, that are coming up and yeah, not everyone deserves the minute by minute and not all of them are going to get it uh, in some of our future projects. We're going to do some short form ones and deep dive in a, in a shorter form way, but man, this movie just keeps rewarding. So thank you so much for doing it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in terms of, I I do the same thing with my podcast. It's really, I do it just because I love it. And uh, it's a chance to talk to my guests. Like uh, normally I've had guests like Ron Howard and Nancy Myers and Michael Douglas. And um, I don't have access to those people in normal life. I don't get to hang out with them. And so getting to invite them on to to live in dialogue in LA, like that's the way I get to talk to them. And so it's, it's, you know, there's nothing better without this sort of podcast uh, surgeons, uh, resur- I would say resurgence because they feel a little bit like old radio plays, but it, it also is very much a new form.
1: Uh, I, I don't know what I would do with my time. Well, I can find... Or energy. Any- <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I can share that with you, but that's... Uh, look, it's yeah. been great to talk to you. Thanks for being a part of the show. You too. Aaron Tracy, what an absolute gentleman. Uh, what what a great, wise approach. I could talk to Aaron for hours at Aaron D Tracy um, uh, with No E, T-R-A-C-Y on Twitter if you want to follow Aaron. Um, all the details about um, Aaron as in his career as a executive producer and screenwriter and, and optioner of um, of great source material to, to produce into uh, TV or movies is in the description of the show. Um, his terrific podcast, which I'm so like flabbergasted to even be asked to be a guest. To live in dialogue in LA is wherever you get your great podcasts from. So do that. Thanks for listening to all the President's Minutes. We have a banger of a week for you. I am at One Blake Minute, at ATPM Pod, um, uh, to follow the show on Twitter. Both of those are Twitter. One Blake Minute also on Instagram. If you want to also uh, think about doing our Patreon, it's patreon forward slash One Heat Minute. Thanks so much for listening. We have an epic week. Enjoy the show.